tried to make this Christmas, their little baby girl Valerie's first Christmas, to be as much like home as possible. There were not many evergreen trees in Ecuador, so a bamboo sapling covered in tinsel would have to do. The excitement of what had taken place just the day before almost crowded out the holiday traditions of life back in the States. But it indeed was the celebration of the whole reason they came to South America, trying to reach a jungle tribe who had never one time heard the story of a babe born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger filled with hay. But Jim and his four friends, along with their wives and children, were there in that Amazon jungle to change all that. As they sung the familiar hymns and sat down to a Christmas dinner together, there was no doubt a real sense of their purpose in risking everything to be where they were. God had sent His Son to reach them. Why would they not do all that they could to reach this secluded tribe? With his heart filled with the joy of the Christmas story and the gift of a Savior, Jim Elliott, as well as his four friends, had no idea that a few days hence they would pay the ultimate price for their desperate attempt to make the good news known to all people. I'm Ronnie Brown, and this is Forgotten. In late 1955, five Christian missionary couples were extremely excited at the progress they were making in trying to contact a reclusive Ecuadorian tribe called the Waudani, also known as the Alca, a word in the local dialect meaning savage. This progress was the culmination of several years of work on the part of then 29-year-old Jim Elliott. Jim was born in Portland, Oregon in 1921. As the son of a Christian minister, Jim was introduced to the gospel early and came to faith in Jesus Christ as a young boy. As a child, he would listen intently as missionaries visiting his home church told of their labor for Christ in far-off lands and in strange cultures. He would meet with them after church, asking them questions about their experiences. And more and more through the years, Jim realized that God was calling him to be a missionary. As a high school student, he excelled in academics as well as athletics and was a bold and uncompromising Christian. In 1945, Jim enrolled in Wheaton College in Illinois. While there, he and a friend hitchhiked to Mexico and stayed with his friend's parents who were missionaries there, spending six weeks serving in that mission work and studying the Spanish language. This later led to a linguistics training in Oklahoma in June of 1950, where he was able to work with a missionary to the indigenous tribes of Ecuador. It was there, while praying for guidance as to where he should go as a missionary, Jim Elliott felt compelled to go to Ecuador in South America. By 1952, he and Pete Fleming, a friend of like calling who he had met during his college years, were in a small Indian village in Ecuador called Quichua to take the place of a retiring missionary. Jim and Pete studied hard and quickly learned the local language. And after three years, many of the Quechua had become faithful Christians. During this time, they had added more members to their team. Wheaton alumni Ed McCulley with his wife Mary Lou joined in late 1952. Jim Elliott himself married Wheaton classmate Elizabeth Howard, who was also doing mission work in Ecuador in 1953. Shortly after, 
1954, Pete Fleming married childhood friend Olive Ansel. In 1955, Nate Saint, an airplane pilot transporting supplies to several missionary stations in the area, joined the mission endeavor with his wife Marjorie, as well as introducing Roger and Barbara Yaudrin, a missionary couple already in Ecuador, to the team. By the fall of 1955, Jim Elliott led the team to begin searching for the reportedly violent tribe of the Waodani and to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. In September of 1955, while piloting his single-engine Piper Cruiser, they like to call their missionary mule, Nate Saint spotted the small village of the Waodani not far from the Curare River. Shortly thereafter, they began conducting flights over the tribe's location where they were dropping packages of clothing, food, and other items for them to find, as well as sounding out friendly phrases over a loudspeaker that they had learned from a Waodani plantation worker. Over the following months, the crowds of natives at the gift drops grew, and they seemed excited to receive whatever the missionaries gave them. On December 23, 1955, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott flew over the Waodani village, dropping clothes and flashlights and other useful items as they had at times before. But this time, the Wild Donnie would give them something in return. Using a long rope that had been dropped from the plane, the natives tied a basket filled with fish, nuts, bananas, a parrot, and other small portions of meat. This gift was so exciting to the missionaries, for it was the first sign of goodwill toward outsiders that they had encountered. The obvious next step would be to land the plane somewhere nearby and meet these tribesmen in person. Upon arriving back at Camp Arajuno and telling the others of the breakthrough, they immediately gathered together and began making plans for their encounter with the Waodani. They divvied out specific duties to each of the five members, some providing shelter, some packing food and supplies, and others maintaining a communication link with the home base. It was here at this meeting that they decided the date of their first face-to-face encounter, January 3rd, 1956. This would give them time to get in and out on several occasions before the beginning of the rainy season. Nate Saint, the pilot, had located a lengthy sandbar on the Curare River, about four and a half miles from the Waodani village. It would be possible to land and take off from there for the moment, but not when the waters began to rise from the coming rains. With the plans set, the families tried to ease into a Christmas celebration, having hearts filled with not only excitement for their mission to reach this people going forward, but also with some apprehension as to what lay ahead. This fierce tribe was particularly known for dangerous and violent treatment of outsiders. The wives of these men had no false presumptions about what could happen to their husbands in their attempt to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. They knew that there was a very real threat that they could all become widows from this daring expedition. Why these men would risk so much could be summed up by a journal entry from one of the team members, Nate Saint. Quote, If God would grant us the vision, 
the word sacrifice would disappear from our lips and thoughts. We would hate the things that seem now so dear to us. Our lives would suddenly be too short. We would despise time-robbing distractions and charge the enemy with all our energies in the name of Christ. May God help us to judge ourselves by the eternities that separate the Akas from the comprehension of Christmas and Him who, though He was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that we might, through His poverty, be made rich. Lord God, speak to my own heart and give me to know Thy holy will and the joy of walking in it. Amen. End quote. Despite all the danger and everything that could go wrong, true to their plans on January 3, 1956, the men started arriving one by one at the sandbar landing strip they called Palm Beach and began setting up camp to meet the Waodani. They built a small shelter and started shouting friendly phrases into the jungle. After four days, a man and two women from the Waodani village came into their camp. With this encounter, everything seemed to be going according to plan. They shared a meal with them and even took one of the natives up for a ride in the plane. The missionaries tried to show sincere friendship and asked them to bring others with them. On Sunday, January the 8th, Nate Saint could see from the air that a group of what looked to be ten villagers were making their way to Palm Beach. As he spoke to his wife Marge on the radio, he said, quote, Looks like they'll be here for the early afternoon service. Pray for us. This is the day. We'll contact you at 4.30. Quote. A few hours later, two wild Donnie women walked out of the jungle. Jim Elliott and Ed McCulley excitedly waded into the waters of the Curare River in order to greet them. As they got closer, these women did not appear friendly. Almost immediately, the two men heard a terrifying cry behind them. They turned to find a group of warriors with their spears raised, ready to throw. Jim, who carried a pistol in his pocket for protection, hesitantly drew the weapon, hoping to hold the men at bay with the threat of gunfire. Undaunted, the warriors approached with spears in hand. Jim fired two shots, intending only to wound his attacker because earlier the team had made an agreement not to kill any native who did not know their Christ in order to save their own lives. Although one warrior was wounded, it did not stop the natives from what they had all along intended to do. Elliot and McCulley were killed first. As Pete Fleming was being speared back on Palm Beach, he could be heard desperately repeating the friendly phrases they had learned and asking the Wild Donnie why they were killing them. Still more Wild Donnie warriors attacked the other two missionaries, killing Nate Saint first and then Roger Yaldron as he picked up the airplane's radio mic to report the attack. Within a few frantic, violent moments, it was over. As the bloody bodies of all five missionaries lifelessly floated down the Cure River, the Wildani warriors raced back to their village where they emptied it and burned it to the ground, fleeing into the jungle. When 4.30 came, Marge Saint was met with the hissing silence of the shortwave radio. A few days later, all five bodies were recovered. 
but because of a quickly approaching tropical storm, the remains of these missionaries were buried in a common grave at Palm Beach on January the 14th. October 28, 1949, when he was a senior at Wheaton College, Jim Elliott wrote a journal entry while contemplating the gift of eternal life found in the words of Jesus. The words of this entry have profound significance to what would take place nearly some six and a half years later on an Ecuadorian sandbar. Quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. End quote. Some suggest that these words were not original with Eliot, pointing to a 17th century English nonconformist preacher by the name of Philip Henry who wrote, quote, He is no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he cannot lose. End quote. Regardless of who first penned the words, they both represent the only clear and reasonable answer to the question that Jesus of Nazareth posed to the people that surrounded him in his day. Quote, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? End quote. No, the decision of young Jim Elliot, which drove him to risk his life to reach a violent and reclusive people, makes all the sense in the world to those whose eyes are dazzled by the one who defeated death, and as he sits at the right hand of God, promises eternal life to all who trust in his name. While all the world stands puzzled at the sight of five men's lifeless bodies floating cold and pale in the waters of a secluded Amazon tributary, and click their tongues, saying, What a waste. We who know we who have encountered the living Christ are confident that he who has conquered death is able and willing to lead those who place their trust in him to an everlasting life that cannot even compare to this brief temporal vapor of sorrow and tears. If this scene of ultimate sacrifice causes us to question anything, it makes us estimate our own role in the grand scope of God's kingdom purposes on this planet. The quest to make known the gift of God's love in His dear Son, Jesus Christ, drove these men to give their life's blood in a South American rainforest, which in time opened the door of the gospel to this very same tribe. Some of the very men that killed these missionaries became believers in Jesus even giving their lives to carry the message of Jesus to other tribes. Where does that leave me? What have I risked for the one who gave so much for me? Or as the words of an almost forgotten hymn states, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? The songwriter then answers his own question. Sure, I must fight if I would reign 
Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. Forgotten is written and produced by me, Ronnie Brown. You can find out more about this show at ForgottenPodcast.com. I'm also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ForgottenPodcast. And as always, thanks for listening.